0: Previously on Breakdown.
1: She is one that's going to rise to the moment. And bottom line, it's about accountability at any level, at the state level, at the federal level. And I think that's what we should be focused on. If laws were broken, people need to be held accountable.
2: Right,
3: right, right. Uh, And and, uh, uh, so was it good luck or bad luck? (laughs) It's been an interesting ride, I'll say that. In, in that case, you've obviously been, you know, I mean, everything you do in it is is watched very closely. I, I, I take it you know that, right? I've picked up on that. McBurney has really distinguished himself because he's been tough, but he's been tough on both sides, and. Um, DA has won the overwhelming majority of those battles, but in my view, uh, that's because she's been right on the merits. And times, you know, he's really spoken in the highest tradition of tough but fair judging.
0: Things appear to be slowing down with this Fulton County special purpose grand jury. Some of the biggest witnesses, Lindsey Graham, Brian Kemp, Rudy Giuliani, have already delivered their testimony. And a few other key players are appealing their summons, including Newt Gingrich and Michael Flynn. So, where does that leave us now? I'm Bill Rankin, the AJC's legal affairs reporter.
1: And I'm senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. Right before Thanksgiving, we shared with you some recent comments from Deputy District Attorney Will Wooten. He confirmed that there are very few witnesses left and said he doesn't anticipate the grand jury will go on for much longer. Which brings us to one of the biggest unanswered questions of the investigation so far. Does Fulton D.A. Fani Willis opt to subpoena former President Trump before she dissolves the grand jury? Or does she decide not to summon him and avoid a bruising and lengthy fight? Or does she ask him nicely for a voluntary interview?
0: There are lots of legal, practical, and yes, political considerations for Willis to weigh here. To help us tease out the latter is Greg Bluestein. He's the AJC's longtime politics reporter who broke many of the stories that have become central parts of the Fulton County investigation.
1: But before we get to that, we'll get you up to date on the latest from the investigation. This is Episode 20, Breakdown Bonus, It's All Politics, of Season 9 of Breakdown, The Trump Grand Jury, from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
3: Hip-hop is a product of Black people. It's a product of Black song. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluesteak, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell and Bill
0: Nygut, are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Here's what's happened since our last episode. First off, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows lost his bid to avoid having to testify before the special purpose grand jury.
1: I covered the circuit court hearing in Pickens, South Carolina in late October, when Judge Edward Miller denied Meadows' motion to quash his out-of-state witness summons. Meadows then filed an appeal with the South Carolina Supreme Court, which agreed to hear it on an expedited basis.
0: Meadows' appeal said the former chief of staff didn't have to honor the summons because, like we've seen in other challenges, the special purpose grand jury is civil, not criminal, in nature. It also said that Meadows could not be a material witness because his claims of executive privilege would prevent him from having to answer any questions.
1: In response, South Carolina lawyers Chris Adams and Andrew Savage, representing the Fulton DA's office, told the high court that Meadows' summons was valid. South Carolina law, they said, allows summons to be issued to out-of-state witnesses when their testimony is required, quote, in any proceeding or investigation by a grand jury or in a criminal action, prosecution, or proceeding. And they said it's undisputed that the Fulton Special Grand Jury is a criminal action or proceeding.
0: As for the executive privilege claims, the lawyer said those must be brought up before Judge Robert McBurney, who's overseeing the Special Purpose Grand Jury, not in the courts of South Carolina.
1: On the afternoon of November 29th, less than 18 hours before Meadows was scheduled to appear before the Grand Jury, the South Carolina Supreme Court issued a unanimous ruling. It said the court's five justices had reviewed Meadows' arguments and found them, quote, to be manifestly without merit. Meadows' November 30th appearance is being rescheduled.
0: Of course, Meadows' former aide, Cassidy Hutchison, voluntarily testified before the special grand jury in mid-November. It's very likely she discussed her conversations with Meadows and what she heard Trump say on a number of occasions such as when he acknowledged that he'd lost the election to Joe Biden, while he was telling the public the election had been stolen from him.
1: We don't know if Meadows has been told he's a target, but it's possible he may have to plead the Fifth Amendment when he appears before the special grand jury.
0: This is an enormous victory for D.A. Willis and her team. Having Meadows testify is about as close as you can get to Trump himself. Meadows will surely be asked about the phone call he set up with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger
1: and his surprise visit to a Cobb County audit of absentee ballot signatures in December 2020. Also of interest, the December 21st, 2020 White House meeting Meadows attended with Trump and members of Congress. The group reportedly discussed the certification of Electoral College votes from Georgia and elsewhere. This could be high-stakes testimony for sure, if, of course, Meadows answers the questions.
0: Because Meadows has already refused to give testimony to the select committee on Capitol Hill, The committee, and then the House, voted to hold Meadows in contempt of Congress for refusing to testify. The matter was referred to the Justice Department, which declined to prosecute the former chief of staff. It's almost certain he'll raise the same executive privilege claims before the special purpose grand jury.
1: Here's Meadows during a December 2021 interview with CPAC Now, America Uncanceled, talking about what he believed the select committee was trying to do
3: what we have uh, here is is, is really uh, an effort to chill the communication between the chief of staff and the president of the United States. President Trump rightfully claimed executive privilege. I have consistently from day one said I would protect that executive privilege. What they want is they want me to come in, they want me to talk about executive privilege, they want me to talk about private conversations that I had with the president of the United States. I'm not going to be the first chief of staff that waives his executive privilege. It's not
1: mine to waive. Meadows does give one caveat.
3: I can condemn what happened on January 6th, but I'm not going to be intimidated to shy away from from doing what I should do, and that's support President Trump's executive claim privilege uh, in a spirit of transparency until the courts have weighed in. If the courts weighed in, that's a different thing.
0: The day after we got the update on Meadows, a new order from Judge Robert McBurney was dropped. It's wonky, but bear with us. A few weeks ago, we told you about the DA's effort to break up 11 of the fake Republican electors from their lawyers, Holly Pearson and Kimberly Burroughs DeBro. Prosecutors said the arrangement was, quote, rife with serious ethical problems. Some legal experts we spoke to said the move suggested the DA might be trying to offer plea deals to some of the electors in exchange for their testimony.
1: Pearson and DeBro argued that they could represent the entire group. They said their clients were identically situated because none of them did anything wrong. The lawyers also said they spoke at length with each client about the perks and perils of joint representation and that they agreed to waive potential conflicts of interest. Pearson and DeBro's legal bills, by the way, are being paid at least in part by the state GOP.
0: A hearing on the matter had initially been scheduled for mid-November, but it was abruptly canceled. Then came McBurney's order on November 30th. It said that the two lawyers, Pearson and debro had to make a choice. Stick with 10 of the electors or just one of them, David Schaefer. Schaefer is undoubtedly the biggest name in the bunch as chairman of the Georgia Republican Party.
1: In McBurney's eyes, the 10 electors were similarly situated, while Schaefer played a larger role in convening the slate of fake electors the judge said Schaefer was in communication with many of the other key players in the DA's investigation. McBurney said Schaefer also played a role in other post-election efforts to call into question the validity of the presidential vote count in Georgia. Quote, he's not just another alternate elector. The imbalance of potential exposure of criminal liability, he said, quote, makes it impractical and arguably unethical for Pearson and DeBro to represent all 11 together.
0: In a statement given to Tamar, Pearson and DeBro said they disagreed that Schaefer was differently situated from the other electors. They said the GOP chairman didn't select the replacement electors or have any, quote, legally material communications with other key players from the DA's investigation. The two attorneys said Schaefer's only role in other post-election efforts questioning the validity of Georgia's vote count was his, quote, constitutionally protected act of petitioning the government through the proper judicial process to contest the election.
1: Pearson and DeBro said the proper line of inquiry should not be whether the witnesses are identically situated, but whether they are aligned in their defenses. Quote, here the undisputed evidence is that all 11 electors are so aligned, and none should be deprived of their counsel of choice.
0: We told you this was wonky, but here's why it could matter. We don't know how exactly the DA's office is regarding these electors. All 16 were sent target letters this summer. And maybe we will see some plea agreements cut before or after some potential indictments are handed up. But one thing that is clear is that David Schaefer is the biggest fish of the bunch. It's worth paying attention to see if he ultimately gets caught in the DA's net.
1: Meanwhile, we're still watching appeals play out from two other well-known witnesses one-time House Speaker Newt Gingrich in Virginia, and Trump's former National Security Advisor, Michael Flynn, in Florida. That should bring you up to date. Next, we sit down with AJC political reporter Greg Bluestein. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs. And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash Unapologetically,
2: A-T-L.
0: Greg Bluestein is the AJC's lead politics reporter, covering the governor's office, campaigns, and other issues that matter to the state. He's also the co-host of our sister podcast, Politically Georgia, and he authored a book about Georgia's political transformation in 2020 called Flipped. We asked him about many of the choices on deck for D.A. Fonnie Willis, as well as many of the investigation's witnesses he's covered over the years. Here's Tamar's and my conversation with him.
1: Well, Greg, thank you for joining us for this episode of Breakdown Bonus. We appreciate having you on the pod.
0: Thank
2: you for having me.
1: Now, Greg, for our listeners who don't know you, uh, you definitely have this reporting spidey sense and this incredible network of sources who always manage to kind of drop you right in the middle of every big story in Georgia politics. Greg was among the first reporters to break the story about Donald Trump's infamous phone call with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. He was the first to tell the world about Trump's separate calls with Governor Kemp, Attorney General Chris Carr. He stumbled upon the meeting of the fake Republican electors in the state Capitol, uh, which we interviewed him about earlier this season. And if that's not enough, Greg co-authored the AJC's very first story about this Fulton County criminal investigation back in February 2021. He even beat me and Bill to the punch. So we are so glad uh, that we get to, to question you today.
0: I forgot about he that. He beats everybody to the punch.
1: I
2: know. That was before tomorrow was on the case, right? Was that, because I remember I was at Dunkin' Donuts right after an event with Governor Kemp when, when that story broke. Exactly.
1: I got pulled in a few days later to help write the profile of D.A. Willis, and that was kind of my first foray into it all. But Greg was on our front lines helping us cover that breaking news. So we are so glad that, that you're here. And here's where I'd like to start. I'm sure looking back, the aftermath of the 2020 elections is probably a giant blur to you. But since you were in the eye of the storm covering all these different events at the heart of the investigation, the Trump-Raffensperger phone call, the fake electors, I'm wondering, did you know how significant all of those events were going to be at the time? Or are you kind of surprised that they ended up becoming a part of this criminal investigation?
2: That's such a good point, because it was really was a whirlwind. I mean, every day, not only did we have double runoffs for Senate races that determined determine the destiny of the U.S. Senate and really shaped the first two years of President Biden's agenda. You also had Donald Trump trying at every turn to not only undermine the election results, but also in a sense undermining the two Republican Senate incumbents who were on the ballot by continuing to focus the attention on him and not not on them. Um I, I think we knew it was, you know, especially when we got that phone call, that this was potential criminal investigation. But what I didn't realize was all the other facets of this investigation that were playing out before our very eyes, right? The, the Georgia House and Senate testimony from Rudy Giuliani, the attempt by Mark Meadows to surprise uh, the, the, uh, the election workers who were auditing some of the ballots— you know, the calls to camp, the calls to state legislators urging them to call a special session, how all that is also played into this ongoing investigation. So the call was this huge momentous moment. But really, when you take it into the entire scope of things, like as you guys have been talking about on this podcast, that I don't think I was realizing that that could be a part of this investigation as we were reporting all those different facets.
0: Greg, this episode will be released on Tuesday, December 6, which is Everyone who looks at TV in Georgia knows that's the uh, runoff for U.S. Senate. Incumbent Democrat Raphael Warnock is being challenged by Republican Herschel Walker. And I liked your tweet the other day with the countdown of days until the end of all these relentless TV ads that seem to go on every program. But um, Walker is Trump's handpicked challenger. Is the special grand jury investigation of Trump having any sort of blip on this race?
2: You know, it's such a good question because it really hasn't. We haven't seen Democrats lean into the January 6th investigation in Washington. We haven't really seen them lean into coverage of this ongoing grand jury hearings here in Georgia. If you're Senator Warnock and you look at the polls and what your data is showing, your number one case is trying to make this a race, a contrast between you and Herschel Walker and not a national race. And so what he's been doing is just... Pointing out the differences between him and Herschel Walker, saying that Herschel Walker is unfit for office, and not trying to bring in Trump, and not trying to bring in January sixth, and you know, he'll mention it. He'll certainly talk about it, but it's not the focal point of his election. What he'll say is that on January fifth, which was the day of the the twenty twenty one runoff that he was victorious in, um, you know, he won. It was a huge day, and by the next day, it was even off the headlines because January sixth happened. And so he'll, you know, condemn the acts of January sixth, but he won't bring up this investigation. And frankly, you know, there's so much that has happened since then as well that of course this is the probably going to be the biggest story in Georgia if it moves forward next year. But in terms of the political campaigns, it has not been front and center.
1: And so Trump recently announced his third run for president, even though he has this investigation and others in Washington and New York looming over him. But being under investigation doesn't prevent somebody from running for president. There are many experts we've talked to who say even being convicted of a crime doesn't bar someone from running for president. Um, What kind of an impact do you think this Fulton probe could have on voters in Georgia, but even nationally?
2: Well, for Trump, he'll use this investigation in his presidential run to further his narrative that this is a witch hunt, right? So he'll keep on saying this is just meant by his political opponents, Republicans and Democrats, to knock him off stride. Here in Georgia, you know, again, if this goes forward, there'll be a headline, it seems, every day. (laughs) Not just in Atlanta, but nationally. Uh, It'll be such a big story that it's hard to see how this doesn't impact his candidacy, doesn't impact his run, especially if there's moves to get him to testify. You know, who knows what could be in the future, but it's hard to see how these ongoing investigations don't cloud his run. And there's a number of Republicans who are already saying... Uh, it's time for a fresh start. And what we saw in Georgia, at least, was his announcement a few weeks ago did not upend the ball game here in Georgia. It didn't change the narrative. It didn't change the political discussion. It didn't freeze candidates out of running or, and frankly, it didn't freeze Republicans from saying bad things about Donald Trump because Georgia is this weird anomaly. We're the state where Donald Trump's backed challengers Not only did they lose, but they went down in flames. David Perdue challenged Governor Kemp, lost by 52 points. Jody Heiss, the congressman, challenged Brad Raffensperger, lost by double digits. So did other Trump-backed challengers. One of the only exceptions was Herschel Walker. um, But Herschel Walker, as our audience in Georgia knows, has such high name recognition from being a former football star that Democrats even joke he would have won an open U.S. Senate primary had he been a Democrat on the ticket.
0: What about Trump's core supporters? Do you think this could sap some of his support at all? Or or are they just too solid behind him?
2: You know, there's been this group of Republicans. It's easy to generalize, but it's a decent generalization. There's been a group of Republicans throughout that has either completely written off every negative story about Donald Trump, said it's fake news, they're not going to believe it. And then there's been a separate group that You know, reads all the reports, believes the reports, but says, you know, it's worth it to vote for a Republican because of uh, policy issues, because of tax issues, because of judicial issues, whatever it might be. We saw plenty of that in 2016 and 2020 when a lot of Republicans who did not like his rhetoric, did not like Donald Trump's personality, his, you know, any of the things he was saying on the campaign trail, but still supported him. Um, We're seeing some of those voters bleed, right? We're seeing some of those voters start to leave Donald Trump um, I'll give you this little anecdote from the campaign trail. Brian Kemp is now the most popular Republican in Georgia. Um, a pro-Herschel Walker group called 34N22 just did a, a opinion poll that showed Brian Kemp's popularity among likely runoff voters is at 60%, and his negatives are about 30%, 33%. Donald Trump's image in Georgia is reverse. His popularity in Georgia is in the 30s. His unpopularity is in the, in the 60s. I'm not saying that holds. And with a lot of rivals in the race, you know, getting 30% of the vote could put you over the top if there's five or six other rivals. But uh, certainly this investigation will continue to cloud and give those Republicans who were ready for the fresh start more ammunition to say, okay, let's go with someone who doesn't have this investigation and and these negatives hanging over them.
0: 34 and 22, 34 was Herschel's number when he won the Heisman at University of Georgia. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the political calculations for District Attorney Ifani Willis. She's up for re-election in 2024 in deep blue Fulton County. I think it 76% or so went for Biden in 2020. Could investigating Trump and other key Republican players help or hurt her? You would presume that as a Democrat, this would be a safe seat for her. Or could people maybe punish her for not prioritizing other issues like violent crime?
2: Yeah, that's such a good point because it's so hard to beat an incumbent in a down ticket race. And, you know, Fulton County DA is such an important office, but it's not necessarily top of mind for a lot of voters. So it takes, it, it happens sometimes. We've seen it happen in Metro Atlanta, you know, on a few occasions where an incumbent district attorney is defeated. No one knows that better than Fonnie Willis, who defeated Paul Howard, of course. But, you know, Paul Howard had also been in office for decades before that, and so beaten off all sorts of challenges. So, you know, it takes sort of an inflection point in order to do that. Fani's worries, I, I would think, um, the DA's worries would be not with Republicans who make up such a small margin of voters, but Democrats who are upset that she's prioritizing this investigation over others. And her challenge, and, and this is one that, she, you know, you can tell she's trying to take it on, is that balancing act of announcing major indictments murder investigations into criminal activity into gang violence into you know illegal guns and other issues that are plaguing Fulton County and metro Atlanta along with proceeding with this investigation you know her argument is hey I can I can walk and chew gum at the same time and it will be up the voters to decide whether or not she's effectively doing that
1: On the flip side, couldn't this investigation perhaps be a springboard for Willis if she wants to seek higher office? Of course, there's been buzz for a long time that if she is going to go toe-to-toe with somebody like Donald Trump, she might want something higher.
2: Exactly. This has raised her national profile. You know, not so long ago, we heard national commentators mispronouncing her name as Fanny Willis and all that, now everyone seems to know her name, everyone knows her role, at least in the national media. And she's become a household name to many in metro Atlanta. And I think if this investigation ends up going forward, she'll be a household name to a lot of people around the country. You know, when you're looking at that, the challenge is also what offices might be open. And we just had our statewide elections in Georgia. So you're not seeing statewide offices open until 2026 could she be an attorney general candidate in 2026 when everything's up for grabs again, I could very, you know, I can definitely uh, see that as a possibility. Other statewide offices are also up for grabs. And one of the key arguments in Georgia's attorney general contest, the last two cycles has been courtroom experience because the incumbent Chris Carr had very little courtroom experience um, before he was appointed to the office and he's won it now. So he's won it twice. Despite that, but his Democratic opponents said, "Hey, this guy doesn't know his way around <laughs> you know a courthouse. you know he he's a political appointee. And those arguments didn't win over enough voters, but certainly Fannie Willis would, would be making that case if she actually runs for that office.
1: So Greg, let's game out one of the biggest decisions on the horizon for the DA whether to subpoena Donald Trump or maybe request a voluntary interview or just go on without him without requesting his testimony. Um, issuing a subpoena, uh, technically a certificate of material witness would show she's being tough, but it could also lead to court fights and delays, but not f- requesting him could frustrate many of her constituents who want to see Trump held accountable for his actions. Help us game out this decision and what someone like her might be thinking about.
2: You know, I would have to think that she would, um, and this is not, I I have no legal expertise whatsoever except for reporting on this stuff. And I used to work for the Daily Report, which is the legal newspaper in Metro Atlanta where I had to pretend to be a lawyer. Um, But I could, I I just, it's hard to imagine this investigation without at least an attempt um, to get the guy who's at the center of it before these grand jurors. So whatever means she does that by, it's hard to imagine her going forward without that attempt um, she's also won just about every court battle, right guys? I mean, other than the Burt Jones, um, which was a, a blunder, you know, according to the judge on her part by having a, a fundraiser with a political opponent of Burt Jones, who also was a longtime colleague and friend of hers. Um, but aside from that, she's won just about every legal battle that that's, that's made the news, including with the Mark Meadows decision that just came out a couple of days ago. So, she has a pretty good track record in getting compelling testimony when folks are trying to fight it as well.
0: Another Republican who won his election last month, as you just said, was Bert Jones. In January, he'll be sworn in as Georgia's next lieutenant governor, and he served as a fake elector and was sent a target letter by Willis. But as she said, she was later disqualified from investigating him. Now he's about to start a new job with this very real threat looming over him. And the prosecuting attorney's counsel of Georgia now has the job to appoint a special prosecutor essentially to investigate him. What have you heard from Jones about this and how could it impact how he governs? Because he'll oversee the Senate.
2: Yeah, he'll be, he's basically the number two politician in Georgia. Doesn't mean he's the second most powerful politician in Georgia. I would probably say this, the house speaker is that, but he, he becomes instantly once he takes office in January, one of the most powerful politicians in the state with wide leeway over what passes the Georgia Senate and what doesn't. And of course, what that means is uh, say over Georgia's $30 billion budget over what culture war policies the state enacts and which ones it doesn't. And really, you know, broad swath of, of just general policies as well. You know, this has been something that has dogged Burt Jones's campaign. Frankly, when I walked into that room of Republican fake electors about two years ago, I was very surprised to see him in there because I saw a lot of grassroots activist types um, who I wasn't surprised to see, but I was surprised to see a sitting state senator. And as we know, other elected officials and other noted Georgia politicians stayed away from that. They were invited to to serve as a fake elector, but didn't. And so this is something that I think he would probably take back if he had the chance. I'm sure it's it's one of his regrets because this will continue to loom over him and will be the number one attack line for Democrats going forward whenever there's a policy that he's pushing that they don't like. They're going to say he's a fake elector and could be indicted at any moment. How he's trying to handle it is going to be really interesting once he takes office because he moved away from the, the real MAGA rhetoric after he won the primary. When I noted in a tweet that he was one of the few candidates in Georgia who has Donald Trump's endorsement, and I just made the point somewhere out there when there was some sort of policy debate um, I immediately heard from his campaign saying, well, Bert's not even emphasizing that. Why are you bringing it up? So they 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 aren't eager to remind folks of either the, of course, they're not eager to remind people of his fake elector background, but even his ties to Donald Trump, because he's now got to show that he's an effective executive in Georgia, right? He is a lieutenant governor. Um, it's a statewide office. And he's got to show that, hey, he can fill in for Governor Kemp if anything happens. As minor as Governor Kemp going out of town on a... Uh, on an international mission, or his major is something something befalling Governor Kemp. He's the one who'd have to step in. so he's got to show that he can work across party lines. he's got to show that you know that he can do what's best for Georgia. and so and this is a guy, by the way, who was kind of the bad boy of the Georgia Senate. You know he had very, very strained ties with his uh, predecessor, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. The two of them don't talk, don't have much to do with each other. Jeff Duncan famously wouldn't even endorse. Bert Jones, the Republican nominee, a few months ago. And so Bert Jones now has this really tough mission ahead to win over some of those skeptical Republicans and also show that he can work with Democrats despite this looming over his head.
1: Well, I want to get back to Governor Kemp in a minute because he's kind of the main guy you cover. But before we get back to there, you were talking about walking in on the ceremony of the fake Republican electors and all 16 of them were sent target letters alerting them that they could be indicted by the the Fulton DA's office. And among those folks is David Schaefer, the head of the Georgia Republican Party and several of his top deputies. Can you tell us a little bit about what kind of ripples that's having within the Georgia GOP? You've written a ton of stories about how independently of all of this, David Schaefer has had some issues. He's kind of driven away the governor uh, because of some of the stances he's taken over the years.
2: Yeah, in some sense, David Schaefer is a pariah among Georgia Republicans. And that sounds weird to say because he's also the head of the Republican Party of Georgia. But the Republican Party of Georgia um, has moved further to the right. And David Schaefer won another term as head of the Georgia GOP, despite really epic defeats, right? Georgia flipped blue for the first time in a presidential race since 1992 under David Schaefer's watch. And of course, um, Republicans lost those two U.S. Senate seats. But David Schaefer had Donald Trump's endorsement, so easily won a, another term. Right now, there is an ongoing and very active effort from Republican officials, elected officials, more the, the more mainstream Republicans, um, who are no moderates. These are not moderates we're talking about. Governor Brian Kemp and Chris Carr, they're not moderates. They're very conservative. But they are distancing themselves from David Schaefer. And under Georgia law, it's a little wonky, but there, there's this new thing called a Leadership Committee, which allows candidates to raise unlimited funds. And Brian Kemp created one, um, signed that measure into law, and then promptly created one. And he's using that leadership committee as basically a go-around from the state party. So basically, his leadership committee is acting as a de facto state Republican party. He can hire staff. He can you know fund ads. He can attack you know Democratic opponents. He can prop up his allies. He, he can do all sorts of things through this leadership committee. And That way, he doesn't have to deal with David Schaefer. That way, he doesn't have to deal with the Republican State Party. And look, it's still there. They're they're still coordinating with the national groups. They still have some money. But it's definitely a diminished force. And that's in part because David Schaefer has taken such a pro-Trump stance. And that's also in part because David Schaefer openly endorsed Trump-backed challengers against Republican incumbents, which is something you don't necessarily see a Georgia GOP chair ever do, is take sides in these races.
1: It's also worth noting that folks like Schaefer have been of interest also to the Justice Department, to the January 6th Committee. What kind of impact could be had if somebody gets indicted, uh, somebody from the upper echelons of of the Georgia GOP? Do you think that could change how this very conservative activist class views these leaders?
2: You know, if you kind of think it one way, oh, you know, they'd be embarrassed and they'd want to uh, move him out of leadership and get a fresh start. But I could also see that sort of having the opposite effect of the activists and, you know, the people who drive the party. These are people who show up on weekend breakfasts in Screven County and <laughs> Tombs County. These are the hardcore dedicated volunteers that will give up a weekend in the middle of the summer to sit in a hotel conference room for three days and, and hash out resolutions, right? Um, and so I could see that also energizing them and, you know, a rallying around the flag effect circling the wagons for David Schaefer. And we've seen that so many times again and again and again with stories and with coverage and with incidents that you'd think would cow, would cause the the Republican base to think twice about supporting this candidate or that issue or whatever. And instead it ends up energizing and galvanizing them even more. So I could see David Schaefer using that as a badge of honor um, in a way uh, as it moves forward.
0: I guess you mentioned how Georgia flipped in 2020 Got to mention that uh, Greg is the author of the book Flipped, which is a very entertaining read about how Georgia turned Republican to Democrat in 2020.
2: And the uh, story is still being written <laughs> for what's <laughs> happening in this election.
0: It is.
1: <laughs> so going back to the general elections back in November, we saw a key witness to this investigation. Governor Kemp easily cruised to re-election. And a week later, he went in to testify at the Fulton County Courthouse for three hours before the grand jury. That was only after a Fulton judge told him he had to honor his subpoena, after the governor had tried to to quash it. So talk to us a little bit about how the governor's relationship with the DA seemed to unravel and the political calculations for him. Because on one level, you might wonder why the governor fought his summons so hard, especially after he so publicly rebuffed President Trump in 2020.
2: Yeah, I think the relation started unraveling when one of his top aides, Cody Hall, went to testify. And, uh, you know, of course, it's closed door. We don't know what Cody was asked. And I haven't been able to find out any of the intricacies. But we do know after that happened, and it was in, in court documents, and you guys reported on it, and we wrote about it in the morning newsletter, The Jolt as well. In court documents shortly after, we, we saw Kemp's legal team try to impose more guardrails on what could be asked and what couldn't be asked. So I think that was one of the first indicators that the relations were getting more strained. And of course, Governor Kemp had political calculations underlying throughout this entire process, which was an election where polls showed after his 52-point defeat of David Perdue, his Trump-backed challenger, that he had sort of united the Republican Party. Even hardcore Trump supporters were backing Brian Kemp. Some of them saw him as the lesser of two evils because he was up against Democrat Stacey Abrams, and some of them, of course, just like Brian Kemp. So polls showed 95% of Republicans backed Brian Kemp all through the summer. He didn't want to do anything that could jeopardize that. He didn't want to do anything to to antagonize Donald Trump. Every time I asked him or another reporter asked him what he thought about Donald Trump, um, what he thought about Trump's latest diatribe, what he thought about Trump's in, uh, rhetoric uh, saying that Brian Kemp is a rhino, all that stuff, he said the focus is on November, the focus is on Stacey Abrams, the focus is on Georgia's economy and Joe Biden's mishandling, whatever it was, he tried to steer clear of Donald Trump. And so going to testify in a grand jury hearing, even behind closed doors, a couple of weeks before an election, where you know the grand jury's focus is at least partly on Donald Trump, could have broken that sort of detente that he had with Donald Trump, With this, this effort to steer clear of Donald Trump. And by the way, Donald Trump didn't say, hardly a bad word about Brian Kemp after he won the primary. So there was this sort of peace treaty between the two that he didn't want to break and was worried, you know, I mean, just, it, it makes sense. Strategically, they were worried that going to testify could uh, awaken Trump's animosity. And in the end it, it wouldn't have mattered much. I mean, Brian Kemp won by almost eight points, but at the time when you're looking at a fight over, you know, the smallest, the barest of you're looking at the tightest of elections, any little one thing could have tilted the outcome. Um, and so they're, they're, I think that's, that helps explain why they wanted to testify after the election rather than before.
0: It'll be interesting if the transcript of his uh, testimony becomes public someday and what he said. But, uh, that could have some ramifications.
2: Oh yeah, I mean it, it'll be really fascinating reading. But I'm I'm sure all this testimony is going to be really fascinating reading. <laughs> I was just on another radio show with some reporters, and we were talking about how frustrating it is. And you guys are literally in the middle of it, so you must be the most frustrated of all. But how frustrating it is to be reporting on all this closed door testimony, and and as reporters, you know, all we want to do is just be a fly on the wall and hear what these folks are saying about all these very important issues. For because for Governor Kemp. I mean, if you're a grand juror, what's the number one question you have is, hey, what happened on that December phone call um, right before Donald Trump's rally in Valdosta, Georgia, where he called up? And, I, you know, I reported an early version of that call based on what two aides who had direct knowledge of that conversation told me as I was driving to Valdosta for that Trump rally. I remember pulling over on the side of the road and writing it up <laughs> uh, as quick as I could. But, you know, that's. Also based on, you know, basically bas- paraphrases of what happened. Brian Kemp is the person who knows exactly what happened on that phone call and could tell those grand jury testimonies. So I would love to hear that. But there's so much else I would love to hear, not just from Kemp, but from all these people who, who have gone behind those closed doors and testified.
0: That's what I said in the last episode. Oh, to be a fly on the wall in that grand jury room. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. How absorbing of an issue could this be for Georgia politics in 2023 and beyond, especially if we have key GOP figures indicted, could it help Democrats or perhaps enable Republicans to sell a kind of MAGA argument that there's a deep state working against them?
2: Yeah. You know, I've joked about this with Tamar, but if this investigation goes forward, this is the biggest story in Georgia and one of the biggest stories in the nation easily, especially in a year in 2023 where you're You're off cycle, you're not, there's no big, huge political elections to dominate the attention like there has been in the last couple of years in Georgia. So this instantly becomes this huge story of how um, Republicans navigate this. And again, I think you'll see Republicans use this as a badge of honor you know, saying that it's a kind of copying Trump's rhetoric, that it's a witch hunt. You'll see other Republicans like Brian Kemp want to kind of steer clear of it. This is not my issue. It's not my thing. He doesn't want to go out in the line to to defend Donald Trump and others who are calling him literally, you know, in some cases calling for his death, right? Calling, issuing death threats and not just him, but... A.G. Chris Carr, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, you're not going to see them go and put their necks on the line for Donald Trump and, and his defenders on this. So you'll see some Republicans try to steer clear. You'll see other Republicans say this is a witch hunt and use it a badge of honor. And you'll see Democrats try to navigate what this means. Because you know, again, in 2022, we did not see Democrats seize on this grand jury investigation or the January 6th in Washington. At least Democrats in Georgia were not using that as campaign trail fodder but that could change in 2023, depending on what comes out in this investigation, what the DA's office decides to make public, and of course, whether or not she decides, Fonnie Willis decides to move forward with any charges based on the grand jury's recommendation.
1: Well, thank you for joining us, Greg. We appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. As always, thanks so very much for listening. We can't do this without you. We'll be back on Tuesdays when there's news to share, and we believe some big news is on the horizon because it sure seems like we're getting close to the end of the special grand jury's work.
1: Breakdown sound engineer is Shane Backler, and our podcast program manager is Jay Black. Thanks also to our presentation specialist, Pete Corson, our editors Jennifer Brett and Dan Kleppel, our managing editor, Leroy Chapman, and the AJC's editor, Kevin Riley.
0: You can follow our daily coverage on our website, AJC.com, and if you really want to support local journalism, please subscribe to the AJC be safe and take care. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin.
1: And I'm Tamar Hallerman.
0: This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.